ever since I've been doing this professionally, I've looked for side projects that I can throw myself into that would uh, propel the community forward and help the community as a whole. And I was like, podcast. It just kind of came to me. I was like, I have the mics. I know how to use Pro Tools really well. I can edit. I've never really done one by myself, but I'm sure I can figure out everything later. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about people who make the news. Here at our podcast, we kind of view our name, It's All Journalism, as a pretty big umbrella. We do talk and focus primarily on working journalists, but we also like to talk to occasionally people who are not necessarily journalists, but storytellers or, or people who are trying to affect their community using a lot of the same tools that we use to do our jobs. Recently, I did a profile for the Washington City paper about Sean Gotkin. He's the sound department manager at the Black Cat Nightclub here in Washington, D.C. And he launched a new podcast, Sounds Like D.C., focusing on the Washington, D.C. music scene. I got to thinking that on our Better News podcast, we recently ran an interview with Joni Deutsch, who is doing the Amplifier podcast about the Charlotte, North Carolina music scene. And I thought this would be a great companion podcast to that. So here's a little something different this week, but I hope you enjoy it. Sean Gotkin is a sound engineer at the Black Cat Music Club in Washington, D.C. He's also the host of Sound Like D.C., a biweekly podcast highlighting the diverse multicultural voices of the district's vibrant music scene. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Well, thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me on. So first of all, what got you interested in sound engineering? Uh, you know, I've been tinkering with electronics ever since I can remember. I was like five or six, and I was kind of tinkering with old transistor radios and wiring and stuff like that. And I was kind of thrown into sound engineering on my first venue gig, which was when I was 19. I worked at this legendary club in Georgetown called The Bayou. And uh, my very first night, I was supposed to be doing the dressing rooms, hospitality for these three really huge bands, Motorhead, Anthrax, and the Deftones. And their monitor engineer didn't show up. So they were like, I was like, hey, I know sound. I can do it. Not really knowing what I was doing. I was just excited to get a chance. And they literally just threw me in front of this console to work with these three really heavy bands. And Lemmy from Motorhead scared the ever-living crap out of me. I thought he was going to kill me at one point. But there's something happened that night, and I kind of fell in love with it. And... I played in bands all throughout my 20s, uh, living in California, and I dabbled in sound a little bit here and there. And I had a construction business for a long time when I came back to the area here. And after the recession of 2008, I had to close my doors and lay off my staff. And my wife at the time talked me into going back to school and learning how to do this professionally. So that's what I did. So what do you like about sound engineering? Pretty much everything. I mean, I know that's such like a blanket answer, but uh, I love the fact that I'm controlling something that isn't easy to control, capturing it, forcing it down these little wires into a, you know, through a microphone into the electronics of my board and then replicating the sound of the band on stage for an entire room full of people. I love working with musicians. I find a lot of commonality with them and a lot of comfort. Uh, we all pretty much speak the same language and very much the same as what I liked about Carpentry. There's a really nice feeling and a job well done at the end of the project. So how'd you, how'd you end up here at the Black Cat? I was working in a, at this uh, little indie club called Iota in Arlington for about uh, the last three years that it was open. And as you go through this business, you meet a lot of people. And I met a lot of other sound engineers who kind of recommend me to the Black Cat that they were looking for somebody part-time. And I started here part-time doing sound once, twice a week and doing Iota. And then when Iota closed, 
for some reason, all the other sound engineers that worked here at the time kind of faded away into other jobs, and I just kind of stepped up. And for the past two years, I've been running this room, and it's they, they basically gave it to me and let me do whatever I wanted with it. Well, it's pretty fortuitous timing for, for you, I guess. It really was, and I've been here for almost four years. Um, I've completely rewired this room at least three to four different times to meet my own specs. When I came to D.C. as an engineer, I was a little cocky and egotistical, and I, I made it a point of wanting to be the best engineer in D.C. with the best-sounding room. And four years later, I'm just happy having the best-sounding room in D.C. So, yeah, yeah before we turned on the mics, we were talking, and you were saying that you're here, you're always here, like always. Six, six days a week. Yeah. What's a typical day for a, for a sound engineer? Since I do several different jobs at the venue here... Um, as far as just the sound engineering side, I usually get in around two or three o'clock, an hour or two before the bands arrive. Sometimes they have cargo vans. Sometimes they come in minivans. Sometimes they come in really, really huge tour buses. And basically, uh, we'll get them loaded in, all their equipment. We'll get them settled in their dressing rooms. My monitor engineer, Elisa Binger, and I, who, by the way, is one of the finest working engineers in D.C., basically start setting the stage and come up with a scene for basically how the night is going to completely play out. And then we just basically manage that. Okay. And, you know, I've been to concerts, I've been to mm -hmm. shows, and you, you see always see somebody sitting at the board, mm -hmm. and you kind of always wonder, well, what's that, what's that job like? What's, <laughs> what's, a, you know, what's a show, you know, running the board in a show like? It really depends on the show. In its most simplistic form, I would have to say that, for those that are not in the know of engineering, you're basically taking a mic and you're putting on every single instrument on stage. So if you have like a five-piece drum kit with five different separate pieces, you want to mic each one of those. So you can end up with like 16 different microphones, most of the time 32 and up, and you're managing all these different individual levels, and then you have to make something very cohesive out of all these different pieces. Before the show happens, you, you set up the mics, you, you yep. have a little run-through and everything. And then... We do oh, sound check, and then we basically get them to where they are completely comfortable with what they're hearing on stage and what they hear in the house. And then they're happy by the time they walk off stage, and then we'll call the next band up, and we'll go through that as many times as needed. Then when the show starts or when the show's about to start, you introduced maybe several hundred people into a room. <laughs> That's it. How does that sort of impact the experience? It changes everything. <laughs> Doing sound check with a really loud band to an empty room is like working in a cavern. You know, I might as well just have them in a big cave somewhere and, and sound is bouncing everywhere. And But after knowing this room as well as I've gotten to know it over the course of three and a half years, that I know how it's going to sound empty and I know instinctively how it's going to sound half full or full. As soon as you start throwing bodies into the room, it muffles certain frequencies. So I have to accent a little bit more and I have to change my mixes around a little bit more to become more cohesive and to work around all the bodies that are absorbing a lot of the sound. So are there any particular memorable shows that uh, you can oh, remember? Man, um, I've been so fortunate in, the past, in my career. I've been doing this professionally for almost six years. Some of the acts that I've worked with have been top tier and really incredible people to work with. Uh, one that comes to mind, and let me just preface this with that I was growing up, I was never a big Green Day fan. I got it, but I was just never a big fan of their music. I was always more Nirvana. <laughs> but Billy Joe Armstrong brought his sideband here about a year and a half ago, and he was the sweetest, nicest, most professional human being musician that I've ever, ever worked with. And he took time to talk to everybody in the club, take selfies with everybody, go out and meet 50 people who are out waiting by his tour bus, and invite 150 people up on stage with him during the last two songs of his encore. Wow. Yeah, so you have a whole set. You can even see him. He was, like, drowned out by 150 people. <laughs> he literally told to just keep jumping up on stage. 
One thing I, I always wonder about when I go to a show or something, and you, you go through this this experience, and you, you know the band reaches its crescendo, it mm-hmm. does its its encore, and everybody sort of files out. What's the end of the evening feel like for you? It feels exhilarating, and it feels a little bit draining because I think if you do this job right, it, it should take every part of you emotionally and physically to get it right and, and to get things sounding so perfect that no one has to really use earplugs, no, one has, no one's ears hurt when they leave here, that they're kind of wrapped in sound and they're immersed in the experience of a live concert. So when you get through all of that, the, usually the musicians are completely drained and tired. The roadies are too, but we're all up there slugging away and pulling mics and wrapping cables and breaking down equipment You know, when the room's empty. And it, it's really kind of cool because after all that, that's when like usually the funniest exchanges come between myself and, and the musicians that I've been working with all night because they just, you know, they're very honest by that point in the night. <laughs> so we usually have some really great conversations at the end of the night. And then you go home and then I, you wake up and you get to do it again. That's it. Yeah. And so it yeah. sounds like a pretty good life. This yeah. is kind of a treat for me because you're a podcaster, so you understand the you're in a room by yourself doing a lot of this. So actually being out at a venue like this, you know, talking to you about sound because sound is so important. It's everything we do, we do here in, in podcasting and sound mm-hmm. production. So it's nice to hear somebody talk about that and also the fact that a lot of podcasts yours include we're going to talk about that Mm -hmm. are going into the the live event yes stepping out of the studio stepping out of the closet with the with the sheet over your head Mm -hmm. and actually interacting with people yeah and uh that's kind of a different experience so that's you know for people who are listening to this journalism podcast and wondering why is he talking to this guy who who runs the sound on concerts this is the reason kind of why (laughs) we're working towards that that sound is our common denominator here and and you know getting good sound is important and but doing it in lots of different situations can be important. I've, I've recorded live podcasts before and they can be really kind of challenging. Oh yeah. I, I tell you. So anyway, you, you started a podcast. I now did. this is actually your second podcast. This is my second. What podcast. was your first podcast? First podcast was called audio bar and I did it with a bunch of friends and we did it out of my uh, recording studio that was in Centerville, Virginia at the time. And basically we'd do an hour and a half show. We'd do a whole live performance of three songs from a full band in my studio. And then we'd sit down on a couch and do an interview for like another half an hour past that. Was this in your house? It was. It was in my, my base. I moved into this house about five years ago and then I completely retrofitted, tore apart the basement and rebuilt it into a recording studio. Oh, and it just worked out fantastically. And the podcast was great. We did, I think, 12 or 13 episodes. And then everybody just got kind of pulled in, in different directions and got busy with what they're doing. A bunch of musicians, you know. And what was that called? That was called Audio Bar. And it's still available on YouTube. I still see the videos on there and stuff. Cool. That's neat. So now you've got a new podcast. Mm -hmm. You have a few episodes up online now. It's called Sounds Like DC. That's it. You know, how would you describe that? It's a brainchild that kind of came to me back in February when I was just kind of sitting around thinking about the fact that I work with all these wonderful musicians who are also my friends, but because of what I do, I never get much of a chance to stop and talk to them, much less sit down and have a conversation about like life stuff. So I was like, how cool would it be with all the people that I know and the equipment that I have that I basically just set up a couple microphones and we sit down with a new artist every week and we have this philosophical conversation about life. Yo, what type of things do you talk about? We go from generally anything from what the upbringing was like of the artist and how they were early influenced by music or by art to, you know, what's the meaning of life? And, and what, <laughs> you know, what would you do if you were president for a day? And, you know, I like throwing a lot of philosophical curveballs in because I don't. 
I always get the impression that we don't talk on a deeper level as much as we used to. And I've always been interested in bringing that back because I think it's how you really get to know and learn about another person. Are you inspired by any particular podcasts, any particular music podcasts? Not really. You know, the funny thing is I, I listen to a few podcasts here and there, but I'm not a giant podcast person myself. And when I'm in my car, it's always music or it's silence. <laughs> you know, usually music on the way to work and then silence on my way home at the end of the night. There's a, definitely a few I enjoy, but I, I got the idea of this from listening to several different podcasts about music and I don't want to be critical of these podcasts, but they weren't really asking the kind of questions and framing the interviews in a way that I would. And it started to frustrate me because it felt more about the hosts as personalities than about the guests that they were having on. And I wanted to put the guest more center in the spotlight. That's what the whole show is about. It's about your guests that you have on. Yeah. And the host is important. The host is kind of the ringmaster, but really chances are the person that so you're interviewing is the, the person people are going to recognize. That's the like, person of interest. Right. Yeah. And they're the ones, the stories that you want to hear. So sounds like DC is, is focused on the DC music scene mm-hmm. the DC musicians. How would you describe the DC music scene? I mean, it's, it's got such a rich history. If you think about you know, going through punk and soul and, yeah. and so many different go-go, so many different genres and, and musicians that have come out of this city. How would you describe it now? Vibrant and on fire. It really is. For the first time in almost 20-some-odd years, there's a collective, a community of musicians that are all wonderfully diverse in the styles that they play, and they all know each other, and everybody tries to help each other, and we realize that it's a collective, it's, it's a push that all of us are making to kind of put this city on the map. Because it hasn't been like that since like the early 90s. It, it kind of, a lot of it faded away for a long time. And I was lucky enough that I grew up at a time when the last time DC blew up. My brother introduced me to Fagazi at age 12 and <laughs> Bad Brains and, you know, all these amazing DC bands. And, and working at the Bayou in my late teens really got me into a lot of other local acts and stuff like that. What I see now is something that I haven't seen since back those days, since going to see Fugazi, you know, at the Metro Center (laughs) station playing an impromptu show or going to see, um, you know, Rollins Band at 930 Club or something like that. You know, D.C. kind of suffers from this, I think, a lot because, you know, in the nation, people think of D.C. as just, you know, the government, the Congress, what's going on with in the White House. They don't always think about D.C. It's a tourist attraction, but people don't think of it. You know what what its cultural identity is, right? And it has such a rich tradition. It does you know once you start digging into it and seeing the artists and the musicians that who've lived and performed here, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, Ray yeah. Clark started here. Oh yeah, yeah. I, yeah I Danny Gatton, who was from Virginia, he used to come into town and play. Eva Cassidy from Alexandria, all these like amazing legends that unfortunately. Some of them aren't with us anymore. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was introduced to Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers and uh, EU go-go bands, and I think it was like 89. I must have been like 14 years old, and I'd never heard anything like that. And I was like, that percussion, like they're banging on buckets and trash cans. How amazing is that? And it sounds fantastic. I actually get to work with these people now, and it's, it's like the thrill of my lifetime to like, you know, bump into uh members of Fagazi who frequent the black hat quite often. And I'm like, Oh, if you guys only knew how much you meant to me in my teenage years when I was angry. And yeah, know. when I was at the connection newspapers, I was the editor of the Lorton paper and the Lorton arts center is, um, where the Lorton prison used to yes. be. Yeah. And, uh, one of its, uh, residents for a time was Chuck Brown, the, that's the, right. The go-go play. And I actually he, he bought his first guitar at the prison for like five bucks. <laughs> 
So they were having the art center was relatively new, and they they were having like a like a summer concert and uh, our festival, and they invited him to come back. And so this was going to be his first time going back to Lorton after having been a prisoner there. And yeah. you know he's like a. You know, I'm telling the story because because one of the people who works on our podcast, Amber Healy, used to work for me, and she was a reporter. And she tells a story of you know says, yeah, he should go try to get an interview with Chuck Brown, and, and yeah. getting a, a phone call from this this incredibly deep voiced man, <laughs> and how she just kind of melted is like, oh my sure. god, sure. Uh, who, who is this? And he came and he performed this incredible show out oh, that's there. That's so cool. Yeah, no, but there's stories like that all over the place. That's in the scene in the community here. We consider this. A- our problems getting noticed, we attribute it to mostly being a transit city, kind of what you were yeah. talking about earlier. And a lot of people come and go, a lot of lawyers, a lot of government people, the people that don't generally dig live music. But there's always been such like a vibrant underground art scene in general here. And especially over the past six years with the, the more closer knit music community, and I think that social media has played into that and helped unite a lot of bands that wouldn't otherwise know each other. It's helped push the whole thing forward. So you're taking, uh, well, how many episodes of your podcast? I am six in right now. Six in. Okay. That's a, that's a milestone. You're going to get past six. It is. It's tough, but, uh, what, what has been, what's your experience so far with this? It's been great. I, I do a little bit of preparation before I go in, but I want most of it to be conversationalist style to where it just feels like you're listening in or you're sitting in the room with two really good friends that are having like this really deep conversation, you know, like a fireside chat, I guess. So I go into it not knowing my guests because they're probably my friends, but also not knowing a lot about them. So when they give me an answer about where they were born or something like that, I'm completely taken off and like surprised. I'm like, oh, wow, you know, that's really cool. So I'm learning at the same time as the people at home are hearing about it for the first time. I think that's a really cool way of, of structuring it. It keeps it real. Now you're, you're taking a new step with your podcast as we're recording this, it's going to be in a week. Mm. You're going to be, uh, I guess on Tuesday yeah. next week, you're going to be recording a live podcast here I at am. the, uh, the black cat. Yeah. Oh, why do that? Why, why introduce this whole <laughs> new craziness? Why, into yeah, the, your, your mix here? I don't have enough already. Um, it was one of the first ideas I had when I decided I wanted to do a podcast is I was like, well, what if I just do it in like batches of seasons, a number of episodes, and then I invite all those people back for like this live thing and see if I can kind of get it to work. It'd be fun to have the six people I interviewed on one stage and I can ask follow-up questions, get the audience involved, get the audience, you know, talking to the panelists, the panelists talking to them, and then we can actually talk about stuff that matters and maybe try to make a change for the better. Cool. And so the, your first show, the, is that the model it follows? You've got people coming back? Yeah, yeah. So I, for the town hall next Tuesday is going to be my, all six of my first guests on the show. Cool. On one stage. So, cool. yeah. H- have you gotten any feedback on the podcast? Lots. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I've been getting a lot in the past. I didn't really get a lot until after episode four. Okay. And well, then I started what? getting flooded with people. People love it. And I wasn't even sure anybody was listening. I was, it wasn't my aim. It, it was a pet project. Where I was like, in February, I told you, I was just sitting there and I was like, I want to do a podcast. So I started doing a podcast. And then I started thinking about the logistics afterwards. Uh, So I just kind of ran into it. But then I started getting all these amazing people writing me on Facebook and sending me emails about how much they really enjoyed it. How about uh, um, episodes of people's lives kind of mirrored episodes in their own lives. And they really connected to that. They liked the format. Some people have said that I have a buttery voice on the radio. You know, I mean, it's it's, a little marginary. Yeah, it's a little marginary. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like butter. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So I think all of that kind of plays into it. 
I, I definitely get that that vibe. It's a it's a fun little little podcast. It has sort of a richness to it. I, I really like, and I encourage people to listen to it. Well, thank you. So being a podcast, I mean, being a sound engineer, mm-hmm. you know, this podcasting thing must come easy to you, right? Kind of. Yeah. The recording and the mixing and like the editing came really, really, really easy. Like everything after that, how to get it online, how to get people to listen, how to promote, like all of that is just, I've been like learning as I go. Yeah. That's actually the, the hardest thing about podcast. There, there, there are segments of po- the podcasting process that are super easy. Yes. Because they, they, everybody always says, and I've said this to people, says, you know, the barrier for entry is really kind of low. The problem is you got to put work in. That's it. It takes a lot of, it you know, you're lucky in that you've got connections in the music scene. You're able, you know, you probably see a lot of the people who are going to be your guests, you know, coming through here. Mm-hmm. You can reach out to them and sort of set up those. Inter- yeah, I book all the shows myself. I'm the producer as well. So I kind of set up everything. And then we recorded at uh, Howard Rayback's studio, um, Machine Room Studios in Arlington, Virginia, who has been wonderful enough to open his studio doors for us to let us do this kind of crazy thing every couple of weeks. Yeah. But then, like you said, the hard part is like the get, hard part posting is it, yes. getting it out there, promotion, yep. getting people to listen to it. Yep. That's... For the first like three episodes, like nobody's listening to this. <laughs> like nobody's going to care about this. But then like people were. And I, and I looked at the play counts and I was like... Those don't look right. And then I started getting more feedback. And as I was getting that, I was like, wow, okay, this is actually kind of something that people are connecting with. That's great. So do you have any advice to somebody who wants to start a podcast? Just do it. Just get, do- get yourself a couple of microphones and interface and a laptop and, you know, um, find that subject and try to keep it honest and real as you can. And I think that people, I'd, I think living in the hard times that we live in right now and the very uh, plasticky kind of surfacey times that we live right now, it's nice to have a bit of honesty and gen, you know, honesty and um, what's the other word I'm looking for? Genuine wisdom. Yes, yes. yes, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, I I, I hear you. Sean, thanks for being on the podcast. This is great. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. We also just posted the results of our online survey about journalism resources. Check out what tools some of our readers are using to make good journalism. Everyone who took our survey received a free It's All Journalism mug. If you'd like to score a mug of your own, take one of our surveys. Go to itsalljournalism.com to learn more. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Lagrisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>